John chapter 9 begins like this. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither have this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him, <clears throat> that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? And some said, This is he. Others said, No, he's like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they to him, How were thine eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay, anointed mine eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? And he said, I know not. I was blind when this started. Uh, interesting text. Now it goes on. We're going to take some time and look at the chapter over the next few weeks if the Lord tarries. Um, and John tells us that there are certain signs that he recorded. He said many more things to Jesus, but these are recorded that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you might have life through his name. So John particularly calls the miracles, he records, signs. And this is the sixth sign of eight. Three of those signs after healings. And the idea is a miracle is something you behold. A sign you may behold as well, but it's something that speaks. And it has something to say. And the healing of this blind man is a sign. Certainly a sign to his neighbors and friends. Certainly a sign we're going to see to the religious community. And certainly a sign to you and I today. You'll see at the end of chapter 8, verse 59, they take up stones to cast at him. They're going to kill him because he said that he was Yahweh, I am. 
But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. King James and so passed by. You may not have that. It's in a good majority of the manuscripts. And so passed by. Then it says, no chapter break when John wrote, and as Jesus passed by, so it seems. It's not necessitated, but neither is it prohibited. It seems that this is happening as Jesus is leaving the temple precincts. And I'm imagining, looking at this, that it would be the southern steps, which were the largest, the broadest steps coming in. You had the eastern gate. The, the southern gates, there were three of them, and uh, no doubt he's leaving there. And the beggars, and we hear in verse 8 here, he's a, he had begged, he's a beggar. The, the lame, the halt, and so forth would sit outside of those gates and beg. Particularly, this is the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, so the crowds were larger and most people felt, I can't go in and ask God for something if I pass this blind guy and don't throw something on his blanket, you know. And the people that were infirm knew how to work the system as well. So they were there at the right time. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a Eden. He perceived. It wasn't just a glance. He looked at this guy and he perceived, he didn't have to ask him, that he was born blind. Now, the disciples know that look. So they say to him, because they see him looking at the guy, and was there a conversation that ensued? We're not, we're not given those details. His disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents? And they say that he was born blind. Now, it is the only specific congenital disease we read of, one that was born. In Acts chapter 3, there's a man who's lame that was born lame, we're told there. And there certainly may have been much more of those in the Gospels. But this is the one specifically, we're told, who was born blind. So either the disciples saw Jesus look at him and ask him something and heard that he was born blind, or there are others, somehow they know by the end of this initial encounter that the man was born blind. That immediately presents a problem to them. Because the Jews believed there was a direct link between suffering and sin. And... Of course, because this man is born blind, it narrows the question a bit. Lord, who did sin? His parents? They believed if a pregnant woman worshipped another god, a Jewish woman, or did something unclean that affected the birth, the baby could be born with some deformity or some difficulty. Uh, or did the child, the unborn, is this prenatal, which was more of a struggle. Uh, David said, unborn in sin, conceived in iniquity. The Jews believed that Esau and Jacob wrestled in the womb, that, that because of a fallen nature, the sinfulness of man, it could actually happen that way. Jesus doesn't discount either one of those and say that they don't exist, 
What he does say is that's not the reason. It's neither the sin of his parents or this man's sin. He doesn't say they're not sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Um, If children were born diseased or deformed because of the parents' sin, the entire Sunday school would be that way, right? And so would you have when you were born. That's not the process. Jesus sees the man. Understand this is a man that was born blind. In the United States, about every 20 minutes, someone loses their sight. And people interviewed say they would rather lose a hand or lose their hearing, even lose a foot, than lose their sight. When someone loses their sight, they have a footprint in their brain of what things look like. And then when that sight is restored, there's somewhat of a footprint of a track record to have your sight back again. When someone is born blind, and this man has only known darkness, and it is only recently that eye surgeons have been able to relieve some, not many, that were born blind. And when that person, they take the bandages off and they see, they don't see. They have no footprint. There's, there's no map in their mind. That, that it takes a while to see vertical lines and horizontal lines and diagonal lines. It takes a while for, and some of those things never develop because when you're a child, those things develop faster. So understand part of the miracle here. Jesus says, go wash. The guy washes, and he comes seeing. Is he 30 years old? He's never seen. There's an incredible miracle physiologically that has to take place. And immediately the guy has the footprint in his mind, the files to put everything he's seeing, so they make sense. It's remarkable. But the man is sitting here, and all he's ever known is darkness. He's never seen his mother's face. He's never seen his father's face. He has no comprehension of green or blue, the color of a sunset or sunrise. He has no idea what the Mount of Olives looks like, which was visible from where he sat, or the temple courts, or friends or the other lame people around him he might have been begging with for decades. His hearing is acute, quite often with people that are blind. Certainly his smell and his touch. No doubt he had begged there for years and heard the things that went on in the temple courts. We don't know if he heard screaming aloud, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus did that on the great silent day of the Feast of Tabernacles. We know that his smell, he had smelled incense. He had smelled the, the altars, the burning. He knew with a great sense of touch certain things. Maybe as a child, after he was nursed, maybe as a, a young child, he, he could feel his mother's face, but he never saw it. 
at some point his parents had to explain to him as a little boy, you're missing something. Of course, he didn't know. He couldn't see anyone else. He may have heard his mother's voice tremble and weep. His parents may have tortured themselves. Did we sin? Lord, have we done something? Or did he sin? He may have heard this question before that the disciples asked, but he's only known blackness since he's born. And because this miracle is a sign, it speaks to us, all of us were born without the ability to see. All of us needed to be brought from darkness to light. This sign speaks of something that takes place in the life of a human being when they encounter Jesus Christ. We're all beggars before then. We're begging pornography or we're begging alcohol. We're begging money. We're begging all of these things that can never give us enough or satisfy us. We think that we need. And here this man, a picture of humanity in, in so many ways. Having never seen sitting there, Jesus walks by. He sees him. He doesn't have to ask. He knows Oida. His seeing is with perception. His disciples then asked him, Master, who, and it's the first question this morning, we're going to look at who, how, and where. Who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And we always want to know that when we have a problem. Who did it? Who can I blame? Whose fault is it? You know, of course, we're the last on the list all the time. But who is always a question we ask in suffering. Jesus doesn't deny that this could be something from sin. How many times is a child born with difficulty because the parent was a drug addict or an alcoholic? Those things can happen genetically, inherent sin and so forth. I mean, disease and congenital disease. He doesn't deny that can happen. And he doesn't say the parents were sinners or the man sitting there blind because there was a partial truth in that. All suffering and all sin, all disease, sickness comes from sin. Genesis chapter 3. If Adam hadn't sinned, there'd be no suffering, no death, no disease in this world. So sin certainly has impacted all of us. So to say there's suffering because of sin, there's a truth in that. But to say everyone who suffers is suffering because of personal sin is not correct. And in fact, it's one of the problems we have in the scripture. Asaph says in Psalm 73, hey, we know the God of Israel is good. That, that creates a problem because we see the wicked people prospering and we see good people suffering. And it's the problem of the ages. How come the wicked are getting away with everything they're getting away with around us? You know, the guy next door is, a, is, is sex trafficking and he wins the lottery, you know, and you're scraping by. You know, how come this goes on? And then finally, of course, Asaph says, until I went into the house of the Lord. And then I recognized their end. 
so important as we gather publicly and come into the house of the Lord that it renews perspective. We can lose it during the week when we're getting kicked around by this world. But it's so wonderful to come and look around and see all these people that everybody else tells is nuts all week. And we come here and look. And we're so happy to be around all the other nuts because they believe the same thing that we do. There's a medicine in that. So, yes... People suffer because of sin, because of Adam's sin, not because of individual sin, because sometimes crooked people are getting away with murder. And we know good people, men and women, they get cancer, difficult times. Now, Jesus doesn't answer what they're asking, and he doesn't go into it for you and I. He could have given a divine explanation just in regards to the problem of suffering, and I don't know if we'd have been able to to embrace that or understand it, but he does something different here. Jesus said, neither had this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must, your translation probably says, we must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. So it it presents a particular problem. Punctuation here is important. When John wrote, there was no punctuation or chapter break in the way that we understand it. And in some of your translations, I know the Peshitta, the earliest Aramaic translation back to probably the second century does this. If we can put the punctuation this way, neither had this man sinned nor his parents, period. New sentence. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work. We must work the works of him that has sent me while it is day, period. The night cometh when no man can work. Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, And he says, we must then works the works of God that they should be made manifest. If you see that there, being made manifest in verse 3 is one single Greek word. And it is, insinuates that many times the works of God happen without coming to our view. How many times around us, every day of our lives, is the work of God transparent, you know, happening around us, and we don't even recognize it. We don't even see it. Jesus says this, though, is so that the works, plural, of God can be made manifest, can be brought into view, out into the open, because they're transpiring around us every day. How many times after something's over do we look back and go, duh, I'm sorry, Lord, for complaining through the, you know, and we realize he was working. Something was happening. And he says, that's the, now the man, his, his hearing is acute. No doubt he's hearing this. He's listening. Neither had this man sinned nor his parents. I wonder what a relief that sentence was for him. It sure made Jesus easier to listen to than Pharisees. But that the works 
of God should be made manifest, and the man hears in him. And then Jesus says, we must work the works of God, or of him that sent me, while it is day. Now, what an interesting clause, the way this says. Look, the, the Puritans would say, daytime is the time for labor. He says that here. We must work the works of God, of him that sent me while it is day. Of course, in that culture, when the night came, people went home and slept. People rose at dawn. They looked forward to the dawn. But just the, the, the simple picture is that daytime is when we work and that the passing of time removes present opportunity. And our day is growing shorter every day. The passing of time removes present opportunity. We must work while it is day. In, in all of our lives, we have that season. We have the season to labor. And as your day and my day is going by and passing, with the passing of time, we also lose opportunity if they're not taken. We must work the works of God. Must. There's something predestined in that. We must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. Isn't it interesting he includes us? We must work the works of God. And then the night cometh when no man can work. Look, several things here for you and I. There's an exhortation, number one, to work. Christianity is not vacation. Um, we are never on leave, we're told in Timothy. For we're, we're to be good soldiers. Um, the kind of work that we're to do, isn't it interesting? God's work. I mean, so many times life kind of absorbs us. We have human responsibility, but then so many times beyond that, because of covetousness or one or, uh, some other thing, we absorb ourselves with self-satisfying endeavors. And he says here, too, as, as we look at this, we need to work. First of all, there's a labor about this, not for our righteousness, but in our serving. The kind of work it is, he says, is God's work. He says there is a time to work. There is an end to this work. And do we feel the pressure of that and the compulsion of that? How desperately does the dark world around us need the light that we have, that we've been given, that we've been brought into? Because look, it's a darkness and it's light. It's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And we can see here, look, Jesus sees the one who's not seeing him. He did that in my life before I was saved. He watched me. 
He saw me. He knew the music I listened to. He knew the drugs I took. He knew about the immorality in my life. He knew about my anger. He saw me when I didn't see him. And he knew I was blind from birth. And he stepped into my life to do the work of God. And he's the same today. He then says, the night cometh when no man can work. Certainly the day here is his three and a half years. After that is darkness. And we all have whatever our three and a half years is to to serve publicly. And then there's a night that comes for all of us. Paul says in Romans, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, chambering wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. In one sense, chronologically, human history, we're near dawn. The night is far spent. Wonderfully, you and I, you know, look at the unsaved world. What are they seeing? Another pandemic? What are, what are they seeing? Uh, mandatory vaccination uh, from mortality. Um, you know, that, that doesn't produce mortality. Doesn't Everybody has a disease, an immune deficiency disease they're going to die from. It's called sin. For every 100 people born, 100 people die. And people are struggling to live longer. And there's all kinds of things we... We offer them today all kinds of exercise machines you can hang your clothes on, uh, right? All kinds of plastic surgery so that you look great when you die. There is a mortality that we all face. And here are you and I, light bearers. And the night is far spent. The day is ready to dawn, the day of Christ. We have that in the darkness of all the present insanity. Aren't you glad? What would it be like for you watching the news and watching the world unravel and seeing everything going on around us if you didn't have Jesus' love and you didn't have the hope of eternal life? What would that be like? He says, the night cometh when no man can work. Robert Murray McShane had that on his watch. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. These three and a half years, this ministry he did that's still touching us today. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground. The guy's blind. He doesn't see this. Don't worry. He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, because down further in verse 11, when he tells everybody what happened, he doesn't say he spit. He just says, he put clay on my eyes. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, which is going to bother the Pharisees, which is part of the project here, 
And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. So he, he puts this on his eyes. Now, the southern steps are cl- the closest part of the temple to the pool of Siloam. I've been there many times. The pool of Siloam is where Hezekiah's tunnel from the Gihon Spring flows down to a pool at the southern end. 1,700 foot through solid rock. He started with a team on each end. They worked to the middle. Um, he says, go down there and wash. Now, did he feel his way down? Did he have somebody help him? It's downhill all the way. Evidently, he, he had a sense. He knew where Siloam was, the pool of Siloam. But Jesus says to him, these are both present imperatives. You must be going. It's not an option here. You must be going and you must be washing in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. Now, it's interesting because there are, there are masculine parts of the, the grammar here. So what he actually says to him is you must be going and you must be washing in the pool of him who was sent. Almost 40 times through the Gospel of John, he, there's a, the points to him being the sent one, Jesus. And here he says, you must be going and you must be washing in the pool of the sent one, the one who has been sent. And how remarkable after his healing to realize by the end of the chapter, he's going to say, I believe you're the son of God, Lord. He's really going to come into the light by the end of the chapter in a remarkable way. Now, he knew the touch of Jesus. He knew the tone of his voice. He had listened to voices his whole life. And there was something. And it would be the same for you and I as if we sat there blind. And that is what happened. And we recognized his touch. And we recognized his voice. And it was different than any other voice we had ever known. Even our mom or our dad who cared about us. It was different. It spoke to the heart, not to the intellect. Because it says then, he went, therefore, you must go, you must be going, you must be washing in the pool of him who was sent. And it says, he went, there's immediate obedience here, therefore, because of that, and washed and came seeing. That's an abbreviated version of what happened there. You can imagine. He went, he washed, and came seeing. What was the first thing he saw? His hands. The sun glistening on the pool of Siloam. Did he see his reflection? There's a miracle. It isn't just that sight is coming back. It's that Jesus instills in him the footprint 
in the place where vision is stored in the brain so that he immediately understood every line, every color he could see, which in itself, not just restoring the sight, but the sight being there is an incredible miracle. And he, now, he, what, what does he do? He came. What was that came like? He's walking up the hill. He's seeing the Mount of Olives. He's walking up somewhere because it says then uh, in verse 8, the neighbors, therefore, which means he went back to his neighborhood. He, he, he probably think, I felt that. I had a walk holding on to that. You know, Oh, that's what that was. Oh, that's what that was when I smelled that. That was a flower. That's what, you know, you can imagine him, you know, all of this information is flooding in. And, and the neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that was blind. Now, we have an interesting thing here in 8, 9, and 10. Those who had known him when he was blind said, Is not this that sat and begged some said, this is he, others said, he is like him, but he said, I am he, therefore said, you with me on that? All of those saids are imperfect tenses. I mean, it's something that happened in the past, but it was continuous. It kind of goes like this. Well, the neighbor saw him and, and, you know, the one who had been blind, and they started saying and kept saying, isn't this the one that used to beg? So you can hear the, the rumbling, the conversation starts. People started saying it, kept saying, and some started saying and kept saying, oh, it's him. This is the one. We recognize him. And others started saying and kept saying, no, he's somebody that resembles him. It's not him. But the blind guy started saying and kept saying, and his ego, am I there remarkably? He kept saying, no, I'm he. I'm the one. Imagine this. He finally gets his sight. Now all his neighbors are blind. <laughs> Just imagine. He's so excited. He's looking at voices he had known throughout his life. He's probably thinking, wow, you got a big nose. You know, I don't know. But he's looking, he's hearing voices, and he's looking at the faces of the voices he's known, and now they're all going off around him. And they start, they start saying, this is, the, is this the one? This is the, you hear all this rumbling, and some say, that's him, that's him. There's a crowd of those. There's another crowd saying, no, he, he must just resemble him. The difference is so remarkable. When you and I get saved, people know what to do with it. Isn't this the beggar we knew? Yeah, that's him. Other people, no, that ain't him because the change is so dramatic in our lives. They don't know what to do with this. And we're saying, yeah, I am the one. I'm the one. I am the one. I'm the one. And that's what the guy's doing. Imagine how he's trying to convince, he's got sight, and he's trying to convince them that he's the guy. Therefore, they kept saying unto him, how? That's the second question here. You're going to find it in verse 15, verse 19, verse 26. They kept saying unto him, they didn't say it once, how were your eyes open? How did this happen? And he answered and said, a man. Now he's going to turn him into a prophet, then to a man of God, then to the son of God as the chapter goes on. And he answered and said, a man that is called Jesus made clay. 
anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of the sent one and wash. And I went. And I washed. And I received sight. Doesn't even say my sight. He never had it. I received sight. Then said they unto him, third question, where is he? He said, I don't know. I was blind when he did it. What do you mean? I wouldn't recognize him, you know. Question today as well. Where is he? We look at what's going on in the world sometimes and think, how could he let that happen? How can he be let this going on? Or in our own lives, no doubt, when there's suffering, there's hardship, we have a prodigal, there's pain. Where is he? And sometimes, like the man, we have to answer, I don't know. He's opened our eyes. He saved us. You know, when the day we get saved, the day we come into the light, we're not thinking about predestination, pre-trib, post-trib rapture. We're not thinking about, you know, we, we've come into the light. That's all we know. I remember when I got saved, all I knew was I was saved. And with that one fact, I drove all my friends out of their mind. And this guy... this happen? How? How? The man called Jesus, told me to go wash. So I went. I did what he said. I received sight. Where is he now? I don't know. You and I can answer that differently. Where is he now? Where is he now? He says, where two or three of you are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst. In fact, the tenses insinuate when two or three of you gather in my name, I am already. He waited for us here this morning. Where is he? Look, I don't know what heartache you may be wrestling with. I don't know what infirmity you're dealing with. And sometimes he doesn't answer the why of those. Sometimes he says, forget the cause and look to purpose that the works of God can be made manifest. It's hard to see. Go to the pool of the sent one. How did this happen to you? It was Jesus. Jesus where is he where is he this morning where is he in your life 
If you don't know Christ this morning, you, you need to ask yourself that question. It's not where is the church, where is the priest, where is the pastor? It's where is he? Is he dead? Is he risen? Is he alive? Is he real? Is he fictitious? If you don't know Christ, that's the most important question in your life. Where is he? For those of us that believe and we're dealing with things internally, we're looking for that divine, you know, Google Maps, you know, where do I go from here? How do I get out of this? You know, just, and the question sometimes is, we need to settle and ask our hearts, Lord, where are you? And the answer may only be for us and not for anyone else around us. <clears throat> but let's have the musicians come. We'll sing a last song. If today you feel like, you know what, I need to know and my eyes need to be opened. I, I, I can't see where I'm going, what's, what the end is going to be. After the service, come up. We'd love to pray with you, give you a Bible, some literature to read. For the rest of us, let's lift our voices. Let's stand and know that he's in our midst. He's as personal now as he was then. And he's looking this morning at those that are not looking at him, no doubt. Let him minister to you as we lift our voices and our hearts. He's in our midst. Lord Jesus, I believe that. We believe it, Lord. We believe it, Lord Jesus. We Believe it, Lord. You would never have lied to us, Lord Jesus. You told us that when we gathered, you would be in the midst, Lord. You see every story, Lord, of every life in this room. You see present struggles. You see joy. You see sorrow. Lord, you see infirmity. You see health. Lord, you see. You perceive. You know. We want to rest there, Lord. You have to help us do that. We want to be washed in that pool, Lord. So, Lord, inhabit our praises now, Lord Jesus, as we lift our voices, Lord. Let it be a sweet savor before you. Just continue, Lord to be in our midst. We trust you to do that, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, in your sweet name and for your glory. Amen.